You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Towards a theory of responsibility. Business was not deaf to these criticisms and warnings, nor completely unresponsive. In the West, labour conditions were steadily improving, the discipline of human resources was emerging, and in 1977, Reverend Leon Sullivan launched what might be regarded as the first CSR code, the Sullivan Principles, which set out the minimum acceptable labour conditions for companies to remain in South Africa, which was still under the discriminatory system of apartheid. Several companies had also begun tackling the issue of waste, For example, 3M's Pollution Prevention Pays program began in 1975, avoiding more than £2.6 billion of pollutants and saving more than $1 billion over the next 30 years. Germany was also a forerunner, launching its Blue Angel eco-label in 1978. What was still missing, however, was widespread agreement of what exactly were businesses' obligations to society. This void was filled by American academic Archie Carroll. In 1979, he provided the first popular definition of corporate social responsibility, or CSR, namely that it is the economic, legal, ethical and discretionary or philanthropic expectations that society has of business. Based on subsequent empirical work, the definition was later presented as the pyramid of weighted importance, with economic responsibility at the base, i.e. most important, followed by legal and ethical dimensions, and philanthropy at the apex, i.e. the least emphasised. Despite considerable evolution in theory and practice since the CSR pyramid was first published in 1991, it has, together with Carroll's four-part definition, endured remarkably well. One of the reasons for the CSR pyramid's longevity, besides its intuitive logic and business-friendly conceptualization, is that it can be applied in practice. For example, Unilever did two studies to investigate its economic impacts in Indonesia and South Africa. What they found was that in Indonesia, while they employed around 7,000 people directly, they also created over 293,000 jobs indirectly through the supply chain. In South Africa, the ratio of direct to indirect jobs was 1 in 22. That in itself is a remarkable economic contribution, but it represents only one of numerous economic multipliers, as identified by the International Business Leaders Forum, the IBLF. According to the IBLF, in addition to creating jobs, companies generate investment, produce safe products and services, pay taxes, invest in human capital, establish local business linkages, spread international business standards, support safe technology and technology transfer, and build physical and institutional infrastructure. Recognizing this greater set of economic impacts and contributions, beyond simply generating returns for shareholders, many companies are now including economic value-added statements in their annual reports. The legal dimension of Carroll's CSR pyramid is more controversial since many regard social responsibility as a purely voluntary activity. 
Pragmatically speaking, however, many governments are weak, failing or corrupt, and without the capacity to effectively police or enforce implementation of their legislation. Hence, voluntary legal compliance becomes genuine social responsibility. Legal responsibility also raises issues like tax avoidance, negative political lobbying, and bribery and corruption, all of which should be acknowledged and addressed by responsible companies. The voluntary versus mandatory debate. Of course, legal issues vary by region and by country. I can still remember a safety, health and environmental governance audit on a chemical company that I did when I was Director of Sustainability Services at KPMG. We visited facilities in five countries, South Africa, Germany, Netherlands, Italy and the US. And one of the things we asked was for their records of legal non-compliance, including fines and penalties. This was a relatively trivial matter in all countries, but one, the United States. First, they had not got just a few, but thousands of non-compliances, which probably said more about the country's onerous legal requirements than the company's negligence. For instance, when we asked to see their air pollution permit documentation, they pointed to an entire bookshelf of leverage files. Second, they didn't know what liability these non-compliances represented because they were in constant negotiation with the government applying the federal sentencing guideline principles over exactly what settlement these would be. On the question of legal responsibilities, I am often asked at talks I give whether CSR should be legislated. My answer is always the same. That depends what you mean. If you mean should the government require companies to spend a certain percentage of their profits on CSR-related activities, as is being proposed in India, the answer is no. After all, that is just another kind of tax. What we need is for governments to have effective regulation and enforcement of the issues that CSR is trying to tackle pollution, labour conditions, environmental degradation, human rights, corruption, and so on. Take transparency, for example. According to a 2010 research study across 30 countries by UNEP, KPMG, the Global Reporting Initiative, and Stellenbosch Business School, there are already 142 country standards or laws with some sustainability reporting requirements or guidance, of which 65% are mandatory. Moving up a level on Carroll's CSR pyramid, the issue of ethical responsibility could be the subject of an entire book itself. With ancient roots in philosophy, business ethics has exploded as an area of study and practice, especially since it became strongly linked to the corporate governance movement of the 1990s. The financial scandals of Enron and WorldCom in 2001, and many others since, like Parmalat and Lehman Brothers, have only served to concentrate the spotlight on business ethics, especially in America. We have seen the recruitment of armies of ethics officers, the drafting of endless codes of conduct, and the widespread introduction of management tools like whistleblowing. Many seem to forget the fact that many similar ethics policies and procedures already existed in the companies that so spectacularly imploded. This should serve as a warning about the limitations of the cult of management when it comes to responsibility. The final element of Carroll's CSR pyramid, the philanthropic responsibilities, has already been dealt with at length in the Age of Philanthropy chapter. I will just add here 
that it is to his credit that Carroll represents philanthropy as the least significant part of CSR. This serves as a useful reminder to many, especially in developing countries, who still equate CSR with philanthropy. Not that Carroll's pyramid is inscrutable. In fact, I have written and published several critiques of the model, to which I shall return in later chapters. For now, however, we must give it its due place in the evolution of the age of management. Challenging Shareholder Supremacy In 1984, another American academic, Ed Freeman, introduced a conceptual framework which has become central to all discussions of responsibility, namely stakeholder theory. According to the theory, business can be understood as a set of relationships among groups which have a stake in the activities of that business, in other words, stakeholders. Stakeholders are those individuals or groups that can affect or can be affected by the achievement of the firm's core purpose. Implicitly, the stakeholder concept was and remains a challenge to the increasingly dominant shareholder interests argument as the primary measure of effective management. Stakeholder theory has had an immensely hubristic effect not only generating lively academic debate, but also achieving widespread application in business as stakeholder management. Much of the early work was done around creating stakeholder maps, which plotted a company's relationship to all its interested and affected parties. However, it quickly became evident that such a broad scoping exercise inevitably results in everybody being included as a stakeholder, which is not very useful. Hence the practice of distinguishing between primary and secondary stakeholders emerged, or producing stakeholder webs in which not all stakeholders are equidistant from the centre. One of the most useful academic contributions to this evolving practice was Mitchell, Agel and Wood's 1997 proposition that stakeholders could be ranked in three dimensions, power, legitimacy and urgency. Of course, relations with stakeholders are not always consensual. I remember asking one CEO in America to tell me about his stakeholder relationships. He asked what I meant, so I said, you know, NGOs, civil society organizations and the like. They are not stakeholders, he growled. They are the enemy. Hard to believe, but I'm not kidding. One useful matrix that I came across classifies stakeholders on two axes supportive or non-supportive, and active or inactive. Hence, supportive active stakeholders are advocates. Non-supportive inactive stakeholders are apathetic. Supportive non-active are dormant. And non-supportive active are adversarial. By implication, engagement approaches should vary depending on the type of stakeholder. Ten years after its introduction by Freeman, the concept of stakeholder engagement was enshrined for the first time as a fundamental element of good management when it was included in the King Code of Corporate Governance in South Africa. First adopted in 1994 and following the UK's Cadbury Code in 1992, the King Code led the way by incorporating CSR into the heart of good governance. Today, stakeholder theory continues to be refined and expanded, with countries like Malaysia even considering changing their corporate law to give more prominence to stakeholders. Indeed, I often think that until we get this right, until stakeholders are given their legal, rightful and equal place at the negotiating table of business, 
all efforts at responsible business amount to little more than window dressing. The quest to civilize cannibals. While this largely socially dominated agenda was evolving, the environmental movement in the wake of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring continued to develop in parallel. 1970 saw the formation of Greenpeace and the celebration of the first Earth Day. Soon after, in 1972, the United Nations convened its seminal conference on the human environment in Stockholm. Then a series of industrial disasters shook the world, a chemical explosion near Cervezo in Italy in 1976, the Union Carbide Gas Leak in Bhopal in India in 1984, the Chernobyl nuclear accident in Ukraine in 1986, and the Sandos chemical spill into the Rhine River in Basel, Switzerland in the same year, all of these with devastating human and ecological impacts. Partly as a result of these disasters, as well as the increasingly worrying data on the state of the world being published by organizations like the World Watch Institute and the World Resources Institute, the UN formed the World Commission on Environment and Development, chaired by former Norwegian Prime Minister Gro Harlem Brundtland. In 1987, the Commission released its report, entitled Our Common Future, which included the now famous definition of sustainable development, development that meets the needs of the current generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. The landmark Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro followed in 1992, attracting 172 governments, 108 heads of state and around 47,000 people. At last, business had a concept that they could wrap their emergent responsibility practices around. In preparation for the Earth Summit, Stephen Schmidheine, together with the newly formed Business Council for Sustainable Development, produced a set of 50 case studies and published them in a book called Changing Course. The BCSD, through the International Chamber of Commerce, also launched the Business Charter for Sustainable Development. This opened the floodgates for a new era of codes, standards and guidelines. One of the first to emerge was EMAS, the European Eco-Management and Auditing Scheme in 1993, and then a few years later, in 1996, the ISO 14001 standard on environmental management. ISO 14001 followed in the footsteps of the immensely successful ISO 9001 quality standard. According to the last ISO survey, by the end of 2008, at least 188,815 ISO 14001 certificates had been issued in 155 countries, up 22% from the previous year. Companies from the services sector accounted for 34% of certificates, compared to 29% in 2007. Recent growth has mainly come from China and other developing countries. Much of the emphasis in the 1990s was still on eco-efficiency, coined and promoted by the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, as well as cleaner production, a concept promoted by the United Nations Environment Programme. This produced the win-win outcome of environmental improvements and financial returns, thereby making a business case for sustainable development. At the time, John Elkington recalls feeling uneasy with eco-efficiency. 
both because it focused narrowly on financial aspects rather than wider economic impacts, but also because it ignored the social dimension of human rights, labour issues, community impacts and the like. To correct this, he introduced the idea of the triple bottom line of sustainability, integrated, balanced, economic, social and environmental performance. Reflecting on the concept's success, Elkington told me in 2008, it was for corporate leaders like popping a pill, where suddenly you saw the world slightly differently. In 1997, Elkington pulled together his ideas on sustainability in a book called Cannibals with Forks. The title came from a quote by the Polish poet Stanislaw Lech, who said, Would it be progress if cannibals learned to eat with forks? For Elkington, the cannibals were companies, displaying aggressive, acquisitive behaviour in the marketplace, and the fork was the three prongs of the triple bottom line. The concept has been widely adopted and institutionalised through the Dow Jones Sustainability Index and the Global Reporting Initiative's Sustainability Reporting Guidelines, launched in 1999 and 2000 respectively.